of the Gospel of Matthew. If you would stand for prayer and for the reading of God's Word as we honor Him in prayer and the reading of it. Let's stand together. Our blessed Lord, we come now to consider the weight and the costliness and the value of the soul. And Lord, we pray that we would consider these, this ultimate question this morning. How valuable do we see our own soul? And what are we willing to trade for it? Oh, blessed God, bring to bear this word upon our hearts and our minds. And Lord, let us find the greatest hope of all for the human soul, and that is Christ. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Beloved, one verse, chapter 16 and verse 26. Hear now the word of the living God. For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? Or what will a man give in exchange for his soul? And thus ends the reading of God's word. You may be seated. Beloved, this morning we continue taking various texts of the Gospels and highlighting the need we have to understand real and true discipleship, that is, what a true disciple of Christ really is, and what the gospel truly is. And the texts that I have selected are all texts of Scripture that we are more than likely, if we've been a Christian for any amount of time, very familiar with. These are, these are verses we have heard throughout the years. And it's, it's important to remind ourselves of those verses and the teaching that is surrounding those verses so that we can think about those verses in the right and proper way. And it's just a good thing to remind ourselves of what a disciple is in Christ and what the glorious and what the gospel is in all of its own glory. And we place a premium upon the gospel. And we certainly should and we must do that. But if we forget what that gospel is, how can we really value it? If we forget the, the surrounding teaching of when the gospel is brought to bear in various circumstances in Scripture, how will we know how to think about it? And so I pray that these expositions are helpful to you. And we're going to continue that this morning as we look at this ultimate question. And our Lord Jesus found it necessary and I think profitable to teach the people around Him and particularly His disciples by asking them questions. Now you may believe that there are no dumb questions and that's just not true. There are dumb questions. There are questions that are dumb. There are silly questions. And there are foolish questions. 
But our Lord Jesus Christ is not guilty of any of that. Our Lord Jesus never asked a silly question. He never asked a foolish question. And he would never waste your time asking an unprofitable question. We see in this verse, verse 26, the ultimate question that Jesus brings to bear in this context, in this interchange with his disciples about the human soul. And he asks a very profound question about the soul. Because in the question, Jesus is really dealing with and getting to the heart of what they think about their own soul. How they consider their own souls. How they value their own souls. What they think about their own lives. And that's the question for us this morning. How do you value your own soul. What do you think about your soul? What will you exchange if you could for your soul? That's the ultimate question. That's the question we are going to ponder and consider and spend our time this morning really examining and by God's grace we'll see it and understand it. By God's grace, we will truly, sincerely interact with this question and ponder its implications this morning. And not simply pass it off as that Christian platitude that simply belongs upon a bumper sticker or our kitchen wall. No, we must engage the Word of God. We must engage the content of this teaching. Our Lord Jesus Christ, when He asks questions, He wants us to engage ourselves in the answer of that question. For example, in the chapter, in this chapter, I'm just going to use this chapter as a, an example, an illustration for you. The Lord Jesus asks a series of questions. And in every question, he is calling the hearers of that question to ponder what he is really asking them. For example, look up at the beginning of the chapter and he's confronted by these malicious and, and vindictive Pharisees and Sadducees who only want to do entrap Jesus and to trick him into saying something that they could condemn him for. And verse 1 says that they came to him testing Jesus. And they asked him to show them a sign from heaven. And he replied to them, when it is evening, you say it will be fair weather for the sky is red. And in the morning there will be a storm today for the sky is red and threatening. Now notice, look at this question. Do you know how to discern the appearance of the sky? but cannot discern the signs of the times. Notice what Jesus is asking them to do. 
Now, you come to me asking for a sign. You don't want to think about these things. You just want me to tell you. You know, you want me to just give it plainly to you because you do not want to spend time thinking about the situation. He said, but you do. You spend all this time considering these temporal things. Might be convicting to some of us this morning. You spend all this time worried and concerned about the day. And yet you don't know the time in which you live. Jesus wasn't just asking them to look around them and consider their environment, was he? That was not the question. That's not what Jesus was asking them to do. Jesus was asking them, ponder who stands before you right now. Ponder who I am. Ponder what you've heard about me. Ponder what you've heard about my miracles. Ponder my teachings. Ponder how I've corrected Pharisee after Pharisee after Pharisee. Ponder how I've destroyed your human traditions. Ponder that. Spend as much time thinking about me as you have the morning and evening. And the day in which you live. See, he goes back, turn, look further down into the chapter, and notice the question he asked his disciples in verse 13. Now, when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he was asking his disciples, Who do people say that the Son of Man is? Now, notice this is another question. Now, this is a simpler question, straightforward. Okay, disciples. Who who do the people, the people you're interacting with, who do they say that I am? And they said, some say John the Baptist, others Elijah, and still others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. Now notice, he gets very particular here. And he said to them, but who do you say that I am? And look at Peter's profound confession. Simon Peter answered, he says, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. A very profound confession. You see, I've heard what everybody else has said about you. People believe that you have the resurrected John the Baptist or the reincarnated John the Baptist. Some say you're the Jeremiah come back to preach and doom and gloom to us. Okay, that's what they say. That's what you're hearing. But who do you? Who do you say? Who do you think I am? But thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. But look at Jesus. And Jesus is not simply asking questions and not considering the answers to these questions. Notice how he responds to Peter's question in verse 18. And I also say to you that you are, or verse 17 I mean. And Jesus said to him, blessed are you Simon Bar-Jonah. Because flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And Jesus demonstrates that he accepts this answer. And that he even approves of it. But he even acknowledges that that answer didn't come from Peter himself. You see, Peter, you didn't, you, this, this idea didn't originate with you. 
Nor did it originate with those people outside of you, but my Father in heaven. He's the one who taught you this. He's the one that showed you this. So, beloved, what I'm here to tell you this morning is that we would be miserable people if we did not consider these questions Jesus are asking us, but more particularly the question before us this morning in verse 26. For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? Or what will a man give in exchange for his soul? Well, let's consider the text itself. Notice that in this question there are certain presuppositions that we must contend with if we are going to understand what Jesus is really asking. Certain presuppositions. Now, what's a presupposition? These, these things that sort of are, are, are these principles that are embedded in the question that are there as a statement of fact or reality. And the first one is that every man has a soul. The question would be absurd if man did not have a soul. If Jesus is going to ask the question, what would it profit a man to gain the whole world and lose his soul? But what we need to understand is what is presupposed here. And that is that man has a soul. Now what is the soul? I think that's important. And I like what Martin Lloyd-Jones and this passage of Scripture, I like what he says about the soul. He doesn't make it too complicated. In fact, he helps us understand it perfectly. And when he says the soul is that immaterial part of man that is related to God. And you must not miss the second part. We all understand it's the immaterial part of man. That is, you're not going to undergo a medical examination and find the soul. You're not going to do it. You're not going to dissect a human being and find their soul. So what is the soul? The soul is that immaterial essence. Of every human being created in the image of God that has its relationship either in favor with God or without favor with God. And this is important. The soul is what separates us from the animal kingdom. Animals do not have souls. Because they are not created to have the intimate and, and intimate communion and fellowship with God as we are, as men are. They are, we are created to not only have communion and fellowship with God, but we're created with the capacity of enjoying our union and communion with God. And that's the soul. The Bible says that when God, in the book of Genesis, that God breathed into Adam's nostrils the breath of life and he became a human 
soul, a life. And in that capacity of material and immaterial, he finds in his soul that relationship and that fellowship and that communion and enjoyment with God. But what else are we to learn about the condition of the soul that makes this the ultimate and greatest question that we can consider? Well, not only that man has a soul, and every man has a soul, but there is a condition that your soul can be in. Your soul can either be in a lost condition... Okay. Notice what Jesus says here in the question. It's it's in the question. If he gains the whole word world and forfeits his soul or loses his soul, it can be in a lost condition. Or it can be in a redeemed condition. A man or woman can lose their soul. They can forfeit their soul. They can give it up. They can find greater gain in the world than their own soul. That's that's what makes the question so weighty and so important. That's why Jesus is asking it. For what Will it profit? That's what Jesus is saying. Jesus is saying, everyone has a soul. That soul is either in a lost condition or a redeemed condition. It's either out of fellowship with God or it's in fellowship with God. There's no in-between. There's no in-between. There's no half-lost soul and no half-redeemed soul. You are either lost or you're redeemed. Your soul is either in fellowship and communion with God or in enjoying God, or it is not. Or it is not. The question truly comes from these presuppositions, not only that we have a soul and not only that and, and having a soul, but also our souls right now being in one of those conditions. Right now, our souls are either in a lost condition and finding gain in so many other things, finding use, usefulness in so many other things, finding a profit in so many other things, or it's in a redeemed condition. And can only find its enjoyment in Christ. And delights in that truth. Now. Why is this important? And why is this question so ultimate? I've established we have a soul. And I've established our souls are in one or two conditions. Amen. That is clear, I hope. But now let's look at the weight and the gravity of the question itself because we may pass over this or be willing to dismiss it as just 
Well, as something that the pastor is excited about or something that he's heard that he's excited about or, you know, it's just not that important to me. But I want you to understand what makes a question so weighty. I'm only going to mention two things. First of all, notice the context of the teaching. Look what Jesus says right after he asked these two important questions, which are basically the same questions stated two different ways. But look at verse 27. For the Son of Man is going to come in the glory of His Father with His angels and will then repay every man according to His deeds. Truly I say to you, there are some of those who are standing here who will not taste death until they see the man of God until they see the Son of Man coming in His kingdom. Notice right after Jesus asked this ultimate question, He teaches that there's coming a judgment. He just asked the question about the value and the state of our souls and then He comes right after that question and says there is going to be a judgment of souls. Every soul is going to be judged as to its condition. Every soul will give an account for its condition. That alone adds weight to the question, doesn't it? But there's another factor that I think is even greater than that one and even as serious as that is. That is every soul is going to stand judgment. Every soul is not only going to live this life, but there's a life to come that's called eternity. And that soul will bear the responsibility of whatever condition it perishes in. If it dies without ever confessing Christ and following Him, believing and trusting and resting in Him alone for their salvation, if it dies apart from Christ, the only hope of sinners, it will spend an eternity under the condemnation of God for having a lost soul. A soul that valued the world and all of its pleasures better than their own salvation and redemption. That they were willing to give up eternity for moments of pleasure, affluence, education, human pride, humanism, human philosophies, All that are opposed to the teaching and kingdom and person and work of Jesus Christ. To have all of that in this life and to give up eternity is a foolish thing, beloved. But the second thing that makes this question so ultimate is who's asking it? (laughs) Right? Who's asking you the question this morning? It's not the pastor. It's not Pastor Stanfield. It's not the Apostle Paul, though he speaketh in Scripture and it be the very Word of God. But it's Christ Himself. 
the greatest man that ever walked the face of the earth. The wisest man that ever walked the face of the earth. The most knowledgeable man that ever walked the face of the earth. The one who has had the most closest and intimate fellowship with the Heavenly Father than anyone ever on earth. He's the one that brings this question to us this morning. And not to consider that question. In and of itself would be bad, wouldn't it? The value of the soul. What's the value of your own soul? But not even to consider it in the, in the light of etern, eternity and judgment. But who asked you the question? Well, he asked the question this morning and you walk away and never consider it again. I hope not. I hope not. So we see, beloved, I hope also to prove to you not only do we have a soul and not only does our soul have a condition about it, but eternity hangs in the balance of that condition. Kind of brings us to the the ultimate, really, the, the idea here, and that is, well, if this is so important, if this is such the ultimate question, is, and the Lord Jesus asked me this question, and there's eternity in the balance here, how do I know whether my soul is lost or redeemed? How do I know? How do I have assurance that I am in a redeemed condition? How do I know if I'm lost? How do I know? And I think that's where we need to spend a good portion of our time. I think the text reveals to us how we can know. How does the text in the surrounding context do this? Well, I think the first thing that we need to come to grips with, uh, to come to grip with, um, as we ponder the question and notice the context, I th- we need to see the emphasis that Jesus is placing upon the thinking of man. How a man or woman thinks is key to knowing whether or not we are in a redeemed condition or a lost condition. Now, we just used the Apostle Peter as an example of a profound confession of Christ. And and I'm going to use Peter again to illustrate what does it mean to think in a way that is not acceptable to God. Well, look just up at verse 21. And this is what Jesus begins to do. After this confession that Peter makes and after the Lord teaching him a little bit about the kingdom of God in heaven, he says in verse 21, From that time Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and be raised up on the third day. Now Jesus is teaching the disciples what's going to happen to him. Expect this. Look for this. Here's what you are going to see me experience. You're going to see me experience what this means to be, um, to suffer. 
You're going to see me be betrayed. And you're going to see me be killed. But you're also going to see me raised on the third day. Look what Peter says. Look at verse 22. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him saying, God forbid it, Lord. This shall never happen to you. Now, how does our Lord respond to Peter's thinking? Remember, what does the Bible say about our hearts? What does the Bible say about words? What are words? Words are a what? A reflection. They are the fruit of our heart, right? They reveal words reveal what we are thinking. Okay? What does Jesus think about Peter's words and thoughts here? Notice in verse 23, he says, But he, he, being Jesus, turned and said to Peter, Get behind me, Satan. You are a stumbling block to me. For you are not setting your mind on God's interests. But man's. What is the Lord doing here? The Lord is revealing to us how important our thought life is, the things we think about, the things we dwell on, the things we we and the things we dwell on are those things that are important to us, those things we're interested in. Those things that are concerning to us. Those ideas. I mean, notice, you know, you go back up into the context. The Pharisees and Sadducees, they thought that we got, you know, they thought poorly of Christ. We got to get rid of this man. We don't want his teaching. We don't want his kingdom. Let's test him. Let's compromise him. Let's get him thrown in prison and possibly let's get him crucified. Let's get him out of here. And so they spent their time trying to trick him with the things they said. You see, brothers and sisters, listen to me. Listen to me. A lost soul is a soul only interested in self. Look at verse 24. And Jesus said to his disciples, If anyone wishes to come after me, he must deny himself. Think about that. He must deny himself. See, what the Lord Jesus is doing, He's helping us to consider what a lost condition of the soul looks like versus a redeemed condition of the soul. The lost soul will not deny Himself. Does not deny Himself. And even if He does, it is so short-lived. All it takes is for the world to call their name. All it takes is for a few temptations to remind them of where they find their greatest enjoyment and pleasures. And it's not in God. It's not in His kingdom. It's not in His word. It's in self. 
The Lord Jesus makes it plain, doesn't He? That the lost soul does not deny Himself. He sees so much other profit and value in everything else. He will not deny Himself. I want the applause of men and I do the things I do for the applause of men. I want guys to like me. I want girls to like me. I want my church to like me. And it's not a matter of what God thinks. It's a matter of what everybody else thinks around you. It's a matter of, of, it's not just that self-interest. But what you want you to see is, it's not just that self-interest, but it's in begging for the acceptance of those like you. That person that's so self-interested wants to surround himself with others who will allow them to be self-interested. The Bible says it this way, or the Apostle Paul says it this way in Romans chapter 1. Not only do they do these immoral things, but they applaud others who do them too. Why? Because they like each other. They want to be with other selfish people, self-interested people, self-focused people. Oh, beloved, I want to to ask you this morning. How much of your thinking centers on yourself and your own desires, your own interests? You see, beloved, we can either be guilty of carnal thinking, self-interested thinking, or it can be biblical, godly, spiritual thinking. Peter wasn't thinking spiritually when he rebuked Jesus, was he? Now Jesus clearly says, Peter, you don't have my interest in mind. You don't have the kingdom of God's interests at heart. You have your own interests. You are guilty, Peter, of following the interests of men and not God. You see how quickly Peter demonstrated a profound confession of Christ and turn right around and exhibit a carnal thinking. Who is the ultimate authority of the lost soul? Who? Will you be governed by the Word of God? Will the lost soul be governed by the Word of God? I tell you, it will not be. It will not be. Notice what Jesus says in verse 24. He says, He must deny Himself and take up His cross and follow Me. What does He mean? Well, what Jesus is saying is you can't follow Me unless you deny self. You must die to your agenda and accept My agenda for your life. Well, I want to do that. I don't want to do those things. I don't want to be a self-sacrificing, Christ-following Christian. I only want to be enough. I only want to be Christian enough to feel good about myself. I only want to feel good about myself. I don't want to be too Christian. 
I don't want to be too much like Christ who had no place to lay his head. Had no home to call his own. I don't want to be like Christ who had everybody abandon him at the cross. You think about your friendships and the value you put on your friendships. But if those friendships are not calling you to live a godly life, let me ask you something. Will you give them up? Will you give them up for Christ? They all forsook Christ. You want to be like Jesus? Jesus was not concerned about the people around him. He was concerned about glorifying his Father. You want to be like Jesus? you more worried about, I mean, you can't sleep at night because somebody says that you offend them when all you did was speak the truth of Scripture? When all you did is call them to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, to repent of their sins, all you did was call them to the account of Scripture, and yet you are more concerned about what people think about you as a Christian than what God thinks about you. Our Lord could never have completed His mission if He listened to the people around Him. He never would have completed it. But because He was so single in His thought life of His glory to God, because He was so focused and so passionate about His fellowship and His communion with His Heavenly Father, He laid aside every insult, every stumbling block, Every offense. He laid them aside and he pressed on to glorify his Father at all cost. At all cost. He even stood before his own accusers and opened not his mouth. He must deny himself and he must take up his cross. What does this mean to take up his cross? Well, I am perfectly, I am in total agreement with Dr. Jones when he says this is one of the most misunderstood verses in Scripture. I've heard it myself, practiced error myself in the early days of my Christianity. What it is not saying is if you have a poor spouse, you are bearing your cross. Oh, my husband. Oh, my wife. Oh, my children. Oh, dear sister and brother, you are bearing a cross for Christ. That's not what it means. It's not what it means. What Jesus is saying is, you must take up your cross as I have taken my cross to do the will of my Father. And when you find yourself in circumstances and situations to glorify your Heavenly Father, will you glorify Him at all costs? Will you nail yourself to that cross? Will you go to it? Will you go to it? Or will you deny? Will you deny the agenda of God and do your own thing and save your own life. Look at what it says in the next verse. Jesus just drives this nail home. Verse 25, for whoever wishes to save his life will lose it. Let me stop there. There's a way which seemeth right unto man. 
There's a way in which man thinks he can save his life. There's a way I can get out of this. There's a way I can get out of this without looking so fanatical about Christ. There's a way I can maneuver, manipulate, and work the situation that I can, I, I, I think I can, I can save myself, my reputation in the world's eyes. I can make my worldly friends love me and adore me. I can work this out. Jesus said, you lose it. You lose it. Because you are your own God. You're your own Savior. You're not thinking about the kingdom of God. You're not denying yourself. You're not bearing your cross. You don't want the things of God. It's too costly. It's too expensive. You don't see those things as being less valuable than your soul. See, it's only the man that sees the value of his soul that says, I must deny myself. When the Lord opens our eyes that we see the value of the soul, He says, I must pick up my cross and I must bear it. And I must offend men rather than offend God. I must do what God says over what men say. I must not try to save my own life. But what is Jesus going to say? But whoever loses his life for my sake will what? Find it. Find it. I give it up. I am I die to my own interest. I embrace the interests of God Almighty. I die to my own authority. I embrace the authority of God Almighty. I I, I, I seek His glory and not my own glory any longer. I will no longer uh, be my own God, but He will be my own Master and my God. See, the Lord Jesus is teaching us how to judge the condition of our soul. See, a lost soul doesn't deny himself. A lost soul is not going to find circumstances in which they were going to have to pay a huge price to follow Christ. They'll compromise and and give up that moment of glorifying their Father rather than, than bearing their cross. Remember what Jesus taught us. What if they hate me? They'll hate you. If they don't like what I'm telling them, they're not going to like what you say. And he who denies me before men, I will deny before my Father in heaven. But whosoever accepts me before men and acknowledges me, I will acknowledge Him before my Father who is in heaven. Oh, brothers and sisters, do you see, are you able now to consider the condition of a soul, your soul? I mean, there are many temptations today. And I think every generation and every culture 
has its own unique temptation. We are obviously, I mean, self-interest has been around since the fall. That's nothing new. But how that self-interest exposes itself and how we are tempted to it is another matter, right? You think about the social media outlets today. You think about, and I could go on. I mean, what can I say about it? I mean, we are more interested about what people post on Facebook about us than what Scripture asks us in Scripture to consider. We're more, we're more distraught over somebody disagreeing with us on Facebook than whether or not we agree with God. We're more concerned about who posted like what we posted on Facebook, we check it every morning. First thing we do, did somebody like what I posted? How about this? Does God like what you posted? Does God like you? Did y'all not catch what we confessed this morning in Psalm 5? God hates the workers of iniquity. Beloved, the lost soul does not consider the things of God. But it's not just social media. I don't want to beat up on our young people or our old people because guess who the most people are on Facebook? It's not young people. It's actually people over 50. It's actually people over 50 are the most people posting on Facebook. We could, you know, I, I'm a, I have several interests. I have several hobbies. I get emails from theological societies. I get email updates or journals or articles from uh, theological societies, from churches, from various pastors. But I also have hunting, fishing emails, uh, exchanges, uh, updates. I get. I have exercise and fitness stuff that I get. And I just got one recently and I just deleted it. The caption says how to have a godly body. I could care less what it said. Because the, the phenomenon of exercise is just another religion. See, men can hardly do anything well, when their mind is not saturated with the kingdom of God. I would say hardly, I say anything. We make all of these hobbies, activities, and interests gods. They're gods. And they rule us and they govern us. We'll have we more convicted over not eating a donut, eating a donut, than whether or not we obey the first, second, third, fourth, fifth, sixth, seventh, eighth, tenth commandment. Amen? more interested in what our little groups think about us than what God thinks about us. Now, brothers and sisters, listen to me. That is the sign of a sick soul. What's the hope for this soul? 
Christ and more Christ and more Christ. The hope for the sick soul is what Jesus said to Peter in his great confession. Flesh and blood didn't reveal this to you, but my Father in heaven is the one that revealed this to you. Now, brothers and sisters, let's ponder and open the question up a little further. What value do you put on the soul? Are you willing? And that's what Jesus is driving at here. That's where he's going with this. Are you willing to have the accolades and the position and all that the world gives you, the fallen world and its philosophies, its evolutionary theory? That God did not create us wonderful and in His image. We, we, we evolved out of some slime somewhere. That this world just, nothing existed and nothing blew up. And here we are. Our, our Freudian psychology, judging our own souls from the theories of God-hating men who hated God, who publicly hated God, and wanted nothing to do with God, and did everything in their power to come up with ideas and a teaching that would destroy revealed Christianity in Christ. That was Freud. And I always cringe when I hear Christians talk about Freudian slips. Brothers and sisters, I'm here to tell you, are you more comfortable with Freud examining your soul or Christ? Who are you more comfortable with? Are you willing to stand in eternity, give an account for a Freudian view of your soul, blaming everybody around you for your own miseries? Never taking responsibility for your own actions. Are you willing to stand before Christ and give that testimony? Now I'm here to tell you, if you do, you will spend eternity in hell. If you adopt Freudian psychology, Rogerian psychology, if you adopt any of the over 475 schools of thought on human psychology, you will perish. There's only one psychology teacher that I want to listen to, and that's the Lord Jesus Christ and His disciples following Him. Are you willing to give up your soul for a godly body. Accolades and education and all that the world offers. Are you willing to give it up? Because I'm here to tell you, the world will have nothing to do with you if you follow Jesus. It will not tolerate a disciple of Christ in their midst. Are you okay with that? Are you okay with that? If you are okay with that, beloved Oh, that's a sign of a healthy soul. The sign of a redeemed soul. 
A soul that will stand before Christ on the day of judgment and say, I have rejected all else. I have denied myself and blessed God you have revealed to me that the Lord Jesus Christ is the only answer for a sick and dead soul. And you know what? Nothing, nothing this world has to offer me compares to the sweetness of fellowship and the communion and the enjoyment you have in God. Nothing. I think about David, and this comes to my mind often I'm, when I'm not here in church and when I'm not worshiping. It's, you know, David said, oh, you know, he's running, from his, he's running for his life. He has a legitimate reason to be out of church. He's somebody's trying to kill him. You know, that's pretty legit. His own son is trying to kill him. And he has to flee for his life. And he writes the psalm. And he talks about, oh, I wish I could be like the sparrow or the little house wren who is in the temple of God day and night. Because I want to be in the temple of God worshiping God. But I can't be. I'm in the wilderness fleeing for my life. But you know where I want to be? I want to be with God's people. I want to join my voice to their voices and I want to celebrate His goodness. I want to join my voices with their voices and I want to, I want to join in the chorus of praise to God. See, I'm not worried about shopping. I'm not worried about the lake. I'm not worried about anything. I want to be with God. Praise God He's given us one out of seven days to gather and worship Him. Will you exchange your soul for the world? Is that a legitimate exchange for you? You have all the girls, have all the boys, have all the, 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 the wealth, right? The, the appearance. Now listen, I'm, I'm going to make an application that I heard Dr. Jones makes and it's so important. I think it fits here. Because he was a medical doctor who became a preacher. He said, you know, I know rich people, wealthy people, People with multi-millions of dollars. And guess what? They, have their, they don't have their health. They got all this money. And they can't even enjoy it. Because they're so sick. Now I want you to equate that to the eternity in the soul. What would you give? Do you know that person with millions of dollars? What would they give in order to be able to walk? In order to be able to run? In order to be able to see and enjoy and to feel the rain and to see, to feel the heat of the sun on their face to splash in the waves? What would they pay for that? What would they give to be like everybody else enjoying God's creation around them? They'd give it all. Because those, all that money sitting in that bank cannot make them in one minute enjoy what God's given. You want to give up your soul? You want to give that up? You want to go the way of the world and forfeit the most valuable possession you own, and that is your soul. Well, let me tell you this. I want to end with this because the only hope we have is Christ. But this, I think we need to learn something from Christ. And that is 
Well, the text teaches us that the soul is more valuable than the world. That's the point Jesus is making. Would you give up your soul for the world? But I want to give you another emphasis on the value of your soul. Turn to Philippians 2. I want you to hear the question. Why is your soul, who else sees your soul so valuable? See, you may see it valuable, but we can't save ourselves, can we? Verse 6. Who, although he, being Christ, existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant, and being made in the likeness of men... Being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. You see how valuable a soul is to God? He sent his son to die for souls. And the Lord Jesus Christ did not consider it a matter worthy of, of retaining His own glory, but laying that glory aside for a season to come into this world as a man so that He might redeem souls. Now, here's the question this morning. Do you see your soul as that valuable? And are you willing to stand before men and deny yourself? And take up your cross. And follow the one who values your soul more than you do. Are you willing to do that? Make that choice this morning. Are you willing to lay this world aside and die to it? That you might embrace the Lord Jesus Christ. Who, who, who left heaven. And came to earth and shed his blood. That he might redeem those who trust and rest in him. That's the question. I hope, beloved, you will not give a fool's answer, but that you will consider the value of your soul and you will flee to Christ. Let's pray.